One of my favorite episodes of the Smash Up Derby is our interview with Terry Davis. It was only our second interview, and we weren't very good at it yet. Uh, the audio quality is not very good, and we tried to cut it into two episodes. We thought that the episode should be shorter. Well, I've always regretted that because I think it holds together as one story, and I've always wanted to re-edit it. So I've had a little time uh, this last weekend, and I'm re-editing the story and representing it to you in one full episode. So if you've already listened to both of these episodes, there's nothing new here. If you haven't listened to them, this is a really inspiring episode. Terry's a great storyteller, and we really hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Jonathan and I thought we'd start the, today's show off with a little bit of a background discussion about the history of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union. And that's because our guest today is Terry Davis, who's a longtime organizer for that union. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about the history of the UE here, because this whole program is going to be about, uh, a un- about a group of workers organizing their shop uh, to leave one wor- electrical workers union and join the United Electrical Workers Union. So the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union, uh, a union you're going to hear us refer to by UE and also the United Electrical Workers Union, it's a very progressive, democratic, militant union. It's the kind of union that uh, workers really love and bosses really hate. And that's the union that Terry goes to work for eventually, and that comes in at the end of the story and uh, assists the uh, employees. Jonathan, you want to give the history of the UE? So the you know the UE was uh, it, it's not actually an electricians union, although there are uh, electricians that are in it. Um, but it gets its name because it was the union formed in the 1930s by people who worked in electrical manufacturing plants uh, and radio manufacturing plants when they used to manufacture radios in America and and also machine tools. Those are the three names: United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. After World War II, um, after participating in um, a sort of national strikes against the, the electrical industry, uh, the UE was, uh, uh, was really targeted by not only the companies, but also the government to attack the union and, and replace it actually with a different union in many places. There was, uh, there was another union set up called the IUE uh, that was set up to destroy UE in the, in the electrical manufacturing industries. Other unions like the like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the the actual electricians union, um, or the auto workers or other unions, sort of took advantage of this to um, to try to uh, take shops away from the UE. And the UE went from about six hundred thousand members right after the war to uh, really down to about a hundred thousand, I think, during the fifty at the end of the fifties yeah. or so. At the end of the fifties, it was about a hundred thousand, little little less than a hundred thousand actually. So there was a, a process to really to really undermine and destroy the UE, but the UE survived and it was, remained an independent union. And by the time that Terry is telling her story in the 70s, UE is st- still at that time very much an industrial union. They, the UE actually really rebuilt in the in the 60s. Uh, I believe actually had close to a quarter of a million members by the end of the 70s. So yeah, so this would have been during a time of, of growth then even for the UE. She's going to work in a place called Stuart Warner. It's in Chicago. That factory had been in the UE in, in the 30s or 40s, had left the UE. 
and gone to the IBEW, the other union. And now in the 70s, Terry's telling the story about it coming back into the UE. Right, and one of the things that Terry describes is uh, when part of the way that the attack on the UE happened was the government passed a law called Taft-Hartley that restricted unions in lots of ways. And one of the ways that it did is it, it forced unions to uh, sign affidavits that, uh, or forced union officers to sign affidavits to saying that they were not and never had been members of the Communist Party. And uh, the UE took the position that it's none of the government's business uh, what the politics of our members are, whether they're members of the Communist Party or members of the John Birch Society or, or anything. Um, it's not the government's business. And so and they took this very principled stance of not signing these affidavits. And well, what that meant was the government would conduct elections and the UE couldn't be on the ballot. And so workers would, uh, you know, have uh, would have a uh, often have a ballot that said something like, uh, IBEW or no union. And in order for the UE to keep the shop, they would have to convince a majority of the workers. They would have to first convince a majority of the workers to vote for no union and then, you know, have a strong enough organization to compel boss to keep bargaining with you. And you can imagine that this does, um, this didn't work. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, maybe a little bit for a little while, but generally it wasn't very successful and, and UE was generally devastated in, in the and, and, and eventually they signed the affidavits. And eventually they, they did. They signed the affidavits and they were allowed to be on the ballots. And they, that's the way they were able to save, you know, uh, that part of the union that stayed with, with the UE. Right. So this is um, so it was a real loss. It was a loss to the labor movement that these unions got uh, bumped off, and of course it was a big boon to the companies to not have oh, these yeah. militant unions um, demanding better pay and integration and equal pay for African Americans and and women. Uh, yeah. So obviously there were big incentives for companies to to try to undermine and and uh, destroy these unions. So. I know Terry because Terry was uh, the international rep at the United Electrical Workers in Chicago when I was a young organizer there. So she was one of my mentors uh, as we tried to organize uh, factories along the Lake Michigan, Chicago, Milwaukee corridor. But the story we want to tell today is that uh, during the 1970s, Terry and, uh, and her husband, Bob Koff, worked at the Stuart Warner auto plant in uh, the near northwest side of Chicago, where they successfully organized a multiracial coalition of workers to confront an, an abusive employer and, uh, and a corrupt union. Um, Terry went on to become a, 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 uh, an organizer with the United Electrical Workers and retired in, the, in 2000, um, and we're super happy to have her join us today. Do you wanna just talk with us about uh, Chicago in the early 70s, and, and and what was Stuart Warner? Sure, I would love to. In fact, um, I'm always delighted to talk about these memories. It was a very important part of my life. Um, back in the early 70s, um, I was looking at Chicago from the perspective of a uh, young activist having been kind of brought up on the civil rights movement and the um, anti-war movement and being led to really wanting to make a difference for radical change in 
the country and um, was looking at the city of Chicago, which is like, was then and probably is today uh, one of the most segregated cities in the country uh, where people might work in the same place, but they went home to neighborhoods that were deeply, deeply segregated. It seemed to me and to my husband, Bob, that in order to really bring people together in a meaningful way on a multiracial basis, you really had to be thinking about the workplace. And so we were pretty naive. We didn't know much about unions, but we just decided to plunge in and see what we could do. So we um, wound up working at Stuart Warner on the north side. So what was Stuart Warner? Stuart Warner um, was, uh, first of all, a really big plant. Uh, it was actually three three plants, but the, the one was by far the biggest, and together they had 20, about 2,500 employees, and they were making auto parts, not cars, but parts for cars and parts for aftermarket, like uh, grease guns and things like that. They made speedometers, odometers, all kinds of gauges, so that was that was what it was. There were skilled workers uh, making parts for these parts, and then there were assembly lines putting them together. And where was the uh, factory located? Uh, at the corner of Diversity and Walcott, which is now covered with condos, which never ceases to seem very bizarre to me. But it was a big, huge tower of a place, uh, eight stories high and... Um, you know, covering an entire, not one block, but probably several. It was populated by a real mix of skilled white men running the uh, screw machines and um, doing the maintenance work and all that sort of thing, the skilled trades, and then uh, some sort of skimmy-skilled people and running drill press machines and things like that. And then the basic assembly line people just putting stuff together. The The biggest departments were the assembly departments, which were pretty much all women. It was, so the plant was very segregated by by sex, but also the, the although the women were from every country, the uh, skilled white men, uh, you know, the white men held all the good jobs, and the more privileged jobs, even on the assembly line, were held by white women. So well, it was a more privileged job. Well, they every every assembly line had a line captain, and there were inspectors, and those jobs were you were not, you were not chained to uh, production rate. You were able to do a little walking around and telling other people what to do rather than just like boom, 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 working out, trying to make your rate. The floor that I worked on was the second floor, and that was like uh, something like three to 400 women working on different lines. So each line had their own product. And I, I worked on a small line most of the time, which made something that 
we had no earthly reason what it was. We, we had no earthly idea what we were making, but um, nobody ever told us what what these gauges were for, but there was some kind of gauge. And then uh, another line would be making speedometers and so forth. How difficult was it to get hired, and what was that like? You know, it was super easy to get hired at Stuart Warner. They, they just um, were constantly hiring, and... People were going out the door too, but it was it was super easy to get hired, and and my only uh, problem was getting hired for the first shift because I had kids at home, so I didn't want to be um, working nights. But just uh, walking in, I started out working on the sixth floor, and I was just shown to a ratty old beat up chair, which was next to a very sweet woman by the name of Marie. So this is Marie, and she'll show you how to do the job. So I sat down, and uh, Marie showed me how to do the job, and then we worked side by side. She told me so much about the history of the plant. She had been there for 30 years. She was an uh, African-American woman from the South Side, and she had made that long commute up to Stuart Warner for 30 years. She told me the history of the union, that the, it was interesting too, and, and told me who to watch out for and who to, she was, she really oriented me to the whole, the whole situation and, and showed me how to, how to work efficiently so I could make my rate. So explain to us what that means. What is making your rate? Well, each little job that we did, and in that department, we did different jobs. We might work on three or four different jobs during the day, but each one had a production rate, and so it, it would be you have to make 220 an hour or you have to make 300 an hour, whatever, depending on how how hard it was. You always had to work up to, uh, to it. You couldn't just sit down and make the rate. It, they were hard to make, but after a while you could get there that was sort of like that's your struggle every day to to work hard enough and fast enough early in the day that you could kind of skate a little bit in the afternoon and and so if you made rate then you would get sort of the maximum amount of of pay that you could get no no it wasn't uh no we were we were paid a flat rate okay but you just had to do it in order to survive you had to make your rate yeah, like what would what would happen to you if you didn't make rate? Well, I guess you would get a warning, and then you might get another warning, and you would eventually get fired. But um, I was fast. I, <laughs> did they? And did what did they when they did they figure out? Like, I mean, did the bosses know that you were like going in fast in the morning and then slacking off in the afternoon? Of course, of and course, <laughs> of course, they knew that. And they figure like, well. Do they, I mean, they like bug you, like, why'd you work that fast all day? Well, they, they, as long as you did what you were supposed to do, they weren't going to mess with you. But um, actually, I'm jumping ahead in the story, but we, we set about trying to organize. And after a while, we became, you know, um, spotlighted as organizers. And then they really set about seriously trying to fire me. And one of the ways they did it was to move me around every hour. They'd put me on a different job. You cannot make great like that. Right, right. You know, right. you just can't. And and they put me on jobs that I'd never been on. And then they'd come around and say, 
what's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know, get this done? Shake it up, shake it up. It was, that was, those were trying times because you, you couldn't do that. So in fact, um, oh, well, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> okay, but did, did you, did they play with the rates? Did they increase the rates overall as well? Was that one of the... Well, there was a time when they sent out time study people all over the plant and re-timed. I don't know if they did it all over the plant, but they did it in the assembly departments, and they re-timed the jobs. And lo and behold, to no one's surprise, they raised the rates, and they raised them a lot. And so people who had been, you know, found a comfortable groove and working suddenly were just t just killing themselves trying to make the rates. We had a, this was when we were at a sort of a down period too in our organizing and we had just um, had a defeat and no nobody could see any light at the end of the tunnel. There was, people were not, did not have the will to fight this. And I used to go around and say, the contract forbids them raising the rates like this. They can't do it. We have to fight back. And people would look at me as though I was speaking a language they didn't understand because they weren't ready to fight. So they knew it was wrong, but they weren't ready to fight. But, you know, they were mad, though. And then when we started to pick back up steam, they didn't any of them forget that. When you first started there, you talked about Maria. Were there other other people you remember? Um, did you have the ability to talk? Was it loud? What was it like in the... Yeah, it depended on where you were, but in my little department, there was like, um, at which they put me in a small area because they didn't want me to have too many people to talk to, but we had maybe um, 15 people. So out of that 15... Two of them were white women from the South, and one of them was from France, and four of them were black women from the South Side, and one was Mexican, and one was Puerto Rican, and one was Filipina, and one was Korean. And I've probably gone over 13, but they were, might not have all been there at the same time. But we had a, just a complete... Um, conglomeration of people. Other people would come and go onto the line, but we we developed a real esprit de corps, and we would we would sometimes have lunches where we'd all bring our favorite food and share it. They were they were very supportive of me when the when the boss was trying to fire me. They were one time. This is a story I was going to tell before. It was uh, one time when I was being moved from job to job and being screamed at. Um, and it just became so frustrating that, and I was doing soldering and I was like, I had this little solder iron and, and I, I just, I was so mad that I started to cry tears of rage and tears would fall onto the, <laughs> the hot, hot metal and they go, <laughs> and, and I was so humiliated at cr the fact that I was crying. And then I looked up and a Kleenex appeared beside me. And then I looked, and a little peppermint appeared beside me. And these women who, you know, they weren't going to speak up or anything, but they just wanted to show support, and it, that just 
made my day. <laughs> so what were the what were the managers like? Did you have a manager for your your department? Would they monitor you a lot? That sort of thing. Okay, the 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 larger department that I was in. Um, on the second floor, there was departments 21 and 22, which were kind of combined. And there was one foreman over that entire department. And then each line had their line supervisors. And they were considered management and were not members of the union. But the big boss, Roy, he was the, he was the foreman over everybody. And he was a guy with a sort of a sadistic nature and a real swagger. And he... He he just shared the holy hell out of people, you know. He would he would come down very hard on people, but then he had his girlfriends. So, uh, like on maybe on a Friday afternoon, certain of the uh, uh, one or the other of his girlfriends would be sent quote to the eighth floor to work. <laughs> and, so we all she would disappear for the rest of the afternoon. And strangely enough, Roy also would disappear. So that was part of the drama of Stuart Warner. Stuart Warner was never boring for one single day that I worked there. It was always some intrigue going on, (laughs) gossip, (laughs) drama. But um, our boss, Roy, caused more drama than his share. When you say he would come down on people, he would yell at people, he would... Um... Yeah, he'd, he'd yell and scream and he'd write them up and he'd fire them and... And did people ever speak back to him? Or was that just the end of the game if he did that? People didn't. And not only that, I mean, people were afraid to do absolutely anything in his departments. It was really difficult and... Um, we would, uh, with our organizing, we would like we would have a petition going around the plant, and people all over the rest of the plant would sign it. But people in my department would. There was just six of us, I think, that would out of all the hundreds that would sign the petitions. That was in the early years. People lost their fear as we went forward. But in the early years, you know, I'd take it out lunchtime, and say, "Who would like to sign this petition?" And they'd all look at me. <laughs> <laughs> So, so how, how did that change? How did that, uh, uh, what, what were the things that led people uh, sort of over time to, to speak up more? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it really had to happen from the outside in, in the case of those departments. We had to really show strength in other departments, and then we had to show strength plant-wide before mm. things would change there. There was a point at which, and we had just one shop steward for the whole department for like 300 people. And not only that, but she was completely best friends with management and wouldn't do anything for anybody and would turn people in and everything else. And so, I, you know, some some few of us would try to file grievances. and And finally, she became so annoyed that she quit as steward. And so they had an election and lo and behold, all these people that wouldn't look at me when I was asking them to sign petitions, they all voted for me for steward. And I, all of a sudden I was the steward. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was like, whoa, 
Everybody talked to me. Everybody talked to me. Everybody came to me with their problems and, you know, it was a whole different, but that was, that was after years, years of, you know, seeming frustration. That's a great segue. Let's, let's go back and, and go to the beginning where, where you came into the plant and, and what did you and your husband think that you were going to do, um, in terms of, um, organizing well god only knows what we really thought at the time i don't think we had any well-formed thoughts like i say we did not have union experience and we didn't really uh and and the situation was that uh back in the 50s ue had organized the plant but um i guess they actually organized in the 40s but then during the mccarthy period the uh, UE was expelled from the plant, and in its place came IBEW Local 1031. And Marie explained this to me when, when I sat there, on, you know, in my early days up there. She said, we used to have a good union. They would fight for you. But then one day the stewards went out for lunch, and they wouldn't let them back in the plant. And then they held an election, but they didn't let us vote for the, that union, so we got the union that we've got now. And she said very wisely, she said, it's better to have a crappy union than to have no union at all, but it's not much better. And <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of anger at the union as well as at the company because they worked hand in glove. So we found that out really fast. And not only that, but our plant was in a uh, amalgamated local which had over 10,000 members. Maybe when we started there, it might have been more like 12,000 members. 12,000 members in the local. And so we were just a minority, probably the biggest plant in the local, but uh, just a small fraction of the total membership. So you go to the union meetings and everybody who was there was just sort of like the in-group. And if anybody raised any questions or grievances, they would just be uh, shouted down. And they had guys in suits who seemed to be packing, standing around the walls. It was a kind of an intimidating situation. So um, people didn't go to the union meetings very much. When you first went into the shop, was that something that you all tried to do, to go to the union meetings? Well, we did go. We didn't go right away. We just wanted to get our feet wet first. And um, my husband, Bob, who was, he was more, at that time, he was definitely more of an organizer than I was. He, he felt like we should try to see who the actual leaders were in the plant. And he had a job. He got it into a skilled department so that his job involved going all over the plant in every department. And um, he got to talk to just about anybody he wanted to. And nobody would ever be able to say a thing to him because he was doing his work. He met some of the people who were the natural leaders in the plant, and they really, they were willing to sit down with us. So there were these two black stewards who were 
just uh, totally fed up with the union, but wanted to represent the people, and they were totally smart and totally committed, and they were willing. They were willing to talk to us, so they said, "Okay, you've got to get some of these white guys from the scale departments to um, listen to you." So that was our. That was sort of like our first task. Like I said, the assembly departments couldn't be organized at that time. But, but so Bob went out and started just, he just made himself friendly with uh, some of these key guys in the skilled uh, screw machine departments. And it's sort of like, well, if we could do this and we could do this, then maybe we could get some more people elected stewards and light a little fire under the union. We weren't we we didn't have grandiose plans, but we did want to deal with the structure of the grievance procedure and and uh, try to try to find an effective way, you know, to to deal with grievances. So then we had a something sort of fell in our lap after we had been talking to these people and gotten them to come to some meetings. But can I ask you? Yeah. Let me interrupt real quick. Oh yeah. I want to ask you about. The, how many um, of the skilled trade people were there? So, how, what what kind of group, what kind of size group are we talking about? And I would say that um, if you took all the well, the guys in the screw machine, some of them were black, some were Latino, but um, a lot of them were white. And but then if you took maintenance, tool and die, the pattern shop. Those are all like the skilled people. The, there was the majority were white men, mm-hmm. and they lived in another world than the black women in assembly. Then in in assembly, the it was predominantly black, but also a lot of Latinos and other nationalities, miscellaneous, and and some whites. Like I say, the whites tend to have the more privileged positions well, there. And, and all the French people, of course. <laughs> there, were, there were only two French people on the whole planet, I think. One was on our line. <laughs> well, her husband worked there, too, and he he had a skilled job. Okay. So she was along for the ride. I, you know, he was, he, he had some kind of a skilled position. I think he was in maintenance. I don't remember. Um, so the, but the, in terms of assembly, the vast majority of People in, in the assembly departments were African-American women? That was true. And then in some of the, like in drill press, which is sort of like in between, it's like there was skill involved and they were in the middle labor grades. And that tended to be, you know, kind of dirty and not that well paid. And that was predominantly black. That department was predominantly black men and some women, men and women. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, it was a hierarchy, but the biggest group was at the bottom and the smallest group was at the top. But I think you couldn't meaningfully, there were enough white people and they were enough isolated, except in terms of actual work. But I mean, socially, they were isolated from the black workers so that you really couldn't meaningfully organize just the black workers and have organized the plant. You needed the whites. 
and they also had more prestige and they had more mobility and they, they just, they were important. Um, and then the Latinos were somewhere in between closer to the bottom. How did you go about organizing or how did your husband go about organizing the, um, skilled guys? Well, he sort of, I think what he did uh, with the couple of guys and one in particular in the in the screw machine department was like present a picture of what it would be like if if we could have more stewards elected because the stewards in the IBW, the stewards are appointed by the business manager, but you can get an election if you circulate a petition. So it's like, Let's let's try it. Let's run for. Why don't you run for steward? And he sort of half wanted to. And then these two black guys, who he respected, that were stewards, said, "Come on, you know, do it." So, but before he decided to run for steward, we had uh, this this thing which really kicked us off. The new contract had just been printed, and I think this we had been there maybe a year, less than a year. I don't remember exactly when that came out, but they printed the contract and, it, and, and so people could see, and they remembered from when they voted on the contract, how much their raise was supposed to be. So they were pitiful raises and the wages were pitiful, but in labor grade 10, we were supposed to get a raise of 18 cents or something. And then when the contract came out, it was only 17. What? And the whole plant just went up in flames. I mean, people were like, wait, we were supposed to get 18 cents. You know, this is only 17. How can that be? So everybody was talking about it. Nobody was doing anything about it. So we, and by we, by this time, it was these two black stewards, some people that, that followed them and who drank beer with them across the street. And then this white guy from Screw Machines and a, a conglomeration of 15 or 20 people, we all went to the union meeting and confronted the, you know, the big honcho of the union because they had overseen the writing up of the contract and the printing out. And, you know, they were party to it. So they were shocked. That, I mean... The uh, head of the union at that time was a judge. Who was, he was a, a judge, part of the Democratic machine and part-time leader of 12,000 workers. You know, it was pretty much of a big joke. Anyway, um, so we cornered him after the meeting. We didn't speak up in the meeting. We cornered him afterwards in a room, you know. He said he would look into it, and nothing happened. We didn't get our penny. But we were able to write it up afterwards and say, you know, people went and talked to Maurice Perlin at the union meeting and blah, blah, blah. So we we were started to put out a newsletter and the workers convinced us that rather than writing a big expose to the plant, this is terrible, this happened, we we instead go and fight it and then write it up afterwards. So we were able to win some things and then write about victories. That was super important 
because we didn't understand, you know, you put out a leaflet to the plant, the company reads it too. So if they see that you're writing up about this problem, they'll just dig in their heels and you'll never get it. These, the two black stewards that I was talking about, these two guys, they said to Bob one time, they said, you know, Bob, you would be a really good organizer if you just put down that pencil. <laughs> I, I never forgot that because, you know, we think of the power of the word, but they actually had, the bosses had the power and we had to outsmart them. We couldn't just talk them down. We had to outorganize them. So that was a very valuable lesson. It, the word got around, you know, that this confrontation had taken place. And after that was when the white guy, Neil, decided to run for, run for steward, and he did. And, of course, he won because his department liked him. And we started working on getting other people to circulate petitions and run for steward. So we got one of the um, guys, and uh, uh, they were the stock chaser department, a Puerto Rican guy, he circulated a petition and he won. And then, you know, we started to, and then a black woman from another department, not mine, but the one next to it on the second floor, she did the same thing and she got elected. And so, you know, we were, we were off to the races at that point. We needed to raise money because we had to put out our little newsletter and we had to do different things. So we decided to have a fundraising party. And that was that was another big step in our early years, which was we decided to have it on the west side in the black community. It was our job, me and Bob, to talk some, at least some white workers to go to that party. And they were terrified. They thought their car was going to be dismantled. They thought they were going to be mugged. I mean, they were just terrified. They didn't want to bring their wives. And we just made it just, it was our, just our business to get some of them there. And we did get them there. And everybody had a great time and black and white and danced together and partied together. And it was a revelation to all. And it might not sound like much to people who have been around the labor movement where people are more prone to be mixing than in most settings, but it was huge for us. It was huge. So if we had had that party in a white neighborhood, it wouldn't have been the same thing. It was so symbolic that the white people had to come and be hosted in the black community. What else was critical for organizing? So you talked about confronting um, confronting issues and solving problems. What kind of problems were you solving? Well, um, there was, well, this was after we had won a lot of, uh, not a lot, we had won a significant number of steward elections. And then we had stewards that were already in office but had been kind of lying low that, that came around because they wanted to be part of the action and they had agreed to be steward for good reasons, but, but, um, they had just been beaten down to think that they couldn't fight anything. But so we started having a lot of great, a lot of grievances, a lot of activity, but the chief steward was like 
we we used to say his name was Sam. We used to say he was just sit all day in the lap of the personnel director, which wasn't literally true, but it just seemed that way that he would just crawl up in the lap of the personnel director and kill all the grievances. And we realized that to really be able to do something with the grievance procedure, we had to have a chief steward that was going to fight the grievances. So we started a plant-wide petition to get a chief steward. And you had to have 30%. We were doing that right in the teeth of layoffs. There was a big lot of layoffs. When was that? That was 70... 75, or I can't remember what year. So in spite of that, we got our 30%. We weren't able to get 50%, but we said, we're just going to file it anyway and see, just take our chances. And we won overwhelmingly. And now we had a chief steward and we had probably 10 stewards who were willing to fight to one degree or another. How many stewards were there in the whole place? Um, probably twice that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. Because, like I said, we just had one steward for the whole second floor. It was crazy. There was The company was very uncomfortable with what was going on. Very uncomfortable. Shortly after that, it, that I was elected steward... And then we had negotiations. A lot of a lot of things happened, but well, who, who was your? It was uh, Neil Burke. It was the white guy from the skill from the screw machines. Yeah. So he did a lot of work on a grievance that was to get a, a, a labor grade bump up for one of the jobs that a lot of people had, and the, that was the stock chasers, and they they were in labor grade nine, but. They were, and they were mostly black, mostly men. They're all men, mostly black. They had to do a lot of different things. So he documented it all, and he made a real case. We were able to win that grievance, but the company was like, no, we're not going to go on and keep upgrading these jobs and let this union run rampant in the plant. And so then one day we came to work like every other day, and... They fired, not fired, but they took the steward badges from Neil, the chief steward, and from six shop stewards, including me, and all the, all the biggest fighters. They all, all lost their, we all lost our, our steward jobs. And they could do that because the union fundamentally was under the control of the company, and they they put the um, worst snitches and low creeping insects in as stewards. I mean, they um, just threw it up in our faces and put people in that were just detested. And they were like, okay, ha ha, what are you going to do about this? It took us a while to regroup. They, you know, everything just went right to hell. Overnight, we had been working, we had gotten in touch with UE uh, along the line, and we just started working up on longer-term strategy. We knew we had the support of the people, and we just had to figure out a way that we could 
uh, take over the union in the plant. And so the first thing we tried was to have our own local within the IBEW. So we petitioned the IBEW and got people together and went to the IBEW and said, let us have our own local. We have, um, you know, a large bargaining unit and we we want to have our own local. Shallied us along for a while and then finally said no. And that was it for the IBEW. That was it. And then we started organizing to go independent. Was so that a hard was that a hard decision? Was it a hard conversation with people? Did we had we had taken this thing from steward elections to chief steward election to the limits that that could go without the company retaliating to mm-hmm. the IBEW. We didn't jump any steps and we didn't look for any shortcuts. We, and we were able, because we had a broad base of activists by that time throughout the departments, we were able to communicate this fight pretty, pretty well. People understood. So they, if we had just come like on day one and said, oh, let's have our own union, they would have said, who are you? But by that time we said, you know, we can't do it with the IBW. They won't help us. So we were able to, you know, take it to the next step. So, but that was, that was one of our big lessons. There are no shortcuts. You, people have to see where they're going and they have to know who's trying to take them there and trust them and, it just doesn't happen overnight. So to what extent did, up to this point, did the company, um, did they try to play the workers off each other? I mean, I understand they, they made this reaction. They had this reaction where they just clamped down and got rid of the steward system, where they got rid of, you know, the, the elected stewards. Were, were there other things that the company was doing to try to... Yeah, there, yeah, there were firings. They fired one of the two black guys that that helped us get things started. Mm-hmm. Um, they fired him for walking down the wrong aisle back from the coffee machine. It was not a very it was not a very strong case there. Wait, you didn't have a Starbucks in the plant? <laughs> not at that time, we did not. <laughs> so, so. Um, we got the the union agreed to arbitrate the case, and they they made it a winner. They knew that they had to do that. That was that was midway along. So he came back. He had been sitting there at home for several months before he came back, and it was sobering. And then they fired another steward. And we'll never know exactly what she was a very, very popular person, and she was fired for nothing. But the company felt they had a better case on her. And it, we'll never know exactly what happened, but something happened where she came back, but then she wasn't steward anymore. And then some of the people, maybe some people, had to promise that they were going to step back in order to get her rehired. I can't say what happened. It was all behind the scenes, but 
th those firings really took a toll. They took people into management. They took several people into management. They gave them. They promoted them. Promoted them to be a boss. Yeah. And so you know, there always had to be new people to come and fill the slots. They tried to fire me. I mean, they. Uh, my supervisor came to the bathroom with me every day for. I don't know how long. She'd come in and I'd go into the toilet and she'd stand outside the stall and say, why are you taking so long? Why are you taking so long? What's wrong? Is there something wrong with your kidneys? And I had to put up with that without losing my temper for months. It was um, like psychological warfare. And it was also to make sure that I didn't talk to anybody. Right, right, because you could talk to people in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. So then finally we filed a labor board case against her. She had worked at Stuart Warner since she was a teenager, I think, and she she was, um, she was had a big, loud voice and a brassy manner, and she scared people, too. She scared people a lot. But um, So we filed a labor board charge against her, and then there was a hearing on it, and she had to go to the hearing. And she was so scared. She thought they were going to put her in jail. And the company didn't tell her anything about what to expect. They didn't, they didn't explain it to her or anything. And she had stuffed dollar bills into her blouse that she was going to use for bail money. <laughs> and, and, I mean, of course she didn't go to jail, but she left me alone after that. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you organizing before that reaction happened? Or, or did that all, did it happen as you moved towards um, changing unions? That was all before that. That was, that was before, um, um, that, that was Charlotte was her name. She was the one that thought she was going to go to jail. And, um, that was, I think, when I was still steward. So that was before the changing unions. The changing unions stuff was, was by the time we got to that point, we, it, was, it was happening. Did you play a role in negotiations then um, when, when there was negotiation? Yeah. Were you able to elect uh, a bargaining committee, that kind of thing? Yeah, they had elections for the bargaining committee, but the way the gar bargaining committee worked was they elected 60 people, and then they were just like the audience. They didn't play any role. The bargaining committee didn't play any role. Just everybody would just sit there and watch Maurice Perlin perform. And he, this is this judge that didn't work in the plant or anything. Right. And didn't work in any plant. No, he worked in the... He worked in the legal plan. He worked in the courthouse. So, so it was just a, 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 a ridiculous charade, negotiations. But, but yeah, we got... I was on the negotiating committee. I was elected to the negotiating committee right after I had been fired as steward. So I was back, you know, full-time on my assembly line job, and... In my department, I, I ran for negotiating committee, and then they had 
a black woman, um, a Puerto Rican woman, and then the white woman that they wanted to have uh, elected. So all the company people would vote for her, and then they figured that the uh, rest of us would be divided between blacks would vote for black, Puerto Rican, and Mexican would vote for the Puerto Rican woman, and nobody would vote for me. And then they put the ballots out, <laughs> and then they went around to each line and collected the ballots, but they somehow forgot our line. They didn't collect the ballots from our line. So my, my group captain, I, she was afraid because she was sort of a little bit a part of the power structure, but she ran all the way across the whole plant with those ballots and said, hey, you forgot our ballots. Anyway, I was really proud of her for doing that. And, and I mean, I won because I had been the steward and people trusted me. So I got to be, for what it, whatever it mattered, I was on the negotiating committee. And just to clarify, so that company, did they put up all three of the other candidates? Was that the idea? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, if you look in elections in the city of Chicago, you will see the very same strategy is in alderman races and everything. You'll see it. It's a a good old Chicago strategy, divide and conquer. Were there things that came out of negotiations that... You all discovered. I know we had talked briefly about the pension plan. Well, Stuart Warner um, had been there for many decades. I forget how long, but it had been there for a long time. And they just basically milked that plant um, of every penny they could by paying cheap wages. And then they had this horrible pension plan, which nobody was in except for a very few people because you wound up paying more than you got basically and i guess for the management people they might have it might have been better at the top levels but most of the workers had no pension because they couldn't afford the payments into the pension plan and we had you know very low wages they were really low even for the skilled trades they were a lot higher than than um, other people, but for their skill level, they were low. And they, um, machines in that plant that were held together by a scotch tape or something. I mean, they had people who just went around trying to put these old machines back together. They would break down all the time, and they, two guys who did nothing but go around and fix broken machines all the time, all the time. They're just, they never replaced anything. It was just a cheapo outfit, you know, then when they had milked it completely, completely dry, they closed it. But it was, uh, it was a disgrace. They made a ton of money out of that place. Well, let's talk about the campaign to change unions. Yeah, no. Well, there was this fateful meeting when we had a meeting with the representative of the IBEW. And some of the really prestigious stewards got up and spoke and said, this is terrible. We've got to have our own local. And there, I mean, it might not sound like a lot of people, but I think there might have been 50 people at that meeting. And they were from, they were leadership people from all over the plant. And 
that was the kind of thing where, you know, the, the IBW rep really showed his ass. I mean, he, he's basically, no, we don't care about you. And the message was heard loud and clear. And then the people who had been organizing right along, everybody was in agreement. And we just said, we have to have our own union. And again, the number of people who signed up was not much over 30%. You know, the petition was filed with the labor board with far less than half of the people uh, having signed the petition. But as is the way of Stuart Warner, overwhelming majority voted for it. And I mean, that's, that's just one of the oddities. Both of you with organizing experience know that that never happens. Mm-hmm. That people aren't going to vote if they don't, uh, if they don't mm-hmm. sign them. You, you get two thirds signed up and then a lot of that goes away before the vote. But not a Stuart Warner. People just knew how oppressed they were. You know, they just like, now give me a chance to vote secret ballot and boom, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then, so then it was not UE though. It was an independent union. So you, you became an independent union, just an independent Stuart Warner workers union. Yeah. Now Bob and I left the plant and I think one of the main reasons that we did was that we didn't want to get elected into leadership. We wanted that to be people, you know, people from the plant, not us. And so we were not there for the next phase of the fight. But the next phase of the fight was people voting to go out on strike. And they had a strike in... It was successful, and people stuck together, and they came out with both feet on the ground and ready to roll. And then they, um, there was a move to affiliate with UE, and then the UAW, which had played no role at all for the entire seven years, showed up and tried to raid. So never a dull moment at Stuart Warner. But we could not, and i got to say this, we could not have won, and we could not have followed the whole, the whole latter part of things. After they, after they got rid of the stewards and after the IBEW ditched us, um, if we had not been working with the UE and working with Frank Rosen, who, who just helped us to strategize, and he had tremendous wisdom. Frank was, at that time the district president, I guess, by that point, the district president of UE. And and he had been helping us ever since we first went and talked to him, uh, which was probably 74, late 74, something like that. And um, and he never, he never wanted to put himself forward or, or take any glory for it, but we could not have done it without him because he helped us strategize about how to set up the independent union, what we would need. And, um, you know, there's a lot of legal things and countless, countless ways he helped us. So I just want to give Frank, who just recently passed away, I want to give him another shout out for, for being an unsung hero during that time. And eventually then, um, 
the independent union then did come into the UE, was that, uh, that was also then a, a, an affiliation vote. So they had to go through another, another vote. But then the, the, I, uh, the UAW intervened. Yeah. So we had an election in which the independent union, let's see, how, how did that work? No, the independent union had affiliated with UE. So we had UE on the ballot. UAW on the ballot, and then the IBAW only had to file one card, and they found somebody, <laughs> to, you know, and they they got on the ballot too. It was, uh, and then Bob and I came back and worked full time on that campaign, you know, until it was all over. On, on the U, and that's when you came on to UE staff. We were at that, yeah. We we had gone to work for UE, and we we came back. For that that was after the year of independent union mm-hmm. there was a year of independent union then the affiliation then the raid and then we came back for that election how did the ue campaign to say that it should be the the union well it was such an interesting campaign because the I, the uaw at that time had a lot of prestige and nobody had ever heard of ue because um, UE was small and not famous, and and the UAW is like, whoa, you know, high wages. Oh, we'll join the UAW. We'll have high wages, and and uh, things will be rosy. That was before all the plant closings and givebacks and everything. Um, so um, the the UE campaign consisted of this. We were. We were stuck in the IBEW, and we had nobody to turn to, and the UE came and helped us. They helped us train our stewards. They helped us with our grievance procedure. They did this. They did, And the UE did. They, they worked hard on support for negotiations, strike support, everything. The UAW was nowhere. The turning point, uh, and so a lot of people got it, and more people got it as time went on. We just picked up steam as we went along. And at one point, all the stewards who had been elected, the newly elected stewards, who were UE stewards, they had been trained by the UE, and then here are these people coming in saying they're for the UAW, and they had, some of them had these big, expensive UAW jackets, and they'd sport them around and everything, and and the UE stewards said, "Look, if you want to, if you want to vote for the uh, UAW, go ahead. But we're not going to be your stewards. You get some UAW people to handle your grievances. We believe in UE." And people looked around their department and it's like, "Who did they want to turn to? They wanted to turn to those stewards." And that was when we started to really consolidate our support and. We wound up winning, but it was uh, that was a tough moment. Do you remember what the vote count was? Well, there was a runoff. It was that close, and that was because of the IBEW. <laughs> it was super close, and there were a few little votes for the IBEW. So then there was a runoff. So in the second election, it was much much broader support for UE, but I do not remember what the numbers were. I, I lived on cigarettes and coffee for like those two months. 
we come down there every morning. We come down like at 4.30 or 5 to start leafleting, and it was windy and cold, and it was poof. It was pretty crazy. Do you have any, um, any Frank Rosen stories you want to tell? Well, Frank was funny because, I mean, he was old enough to remember. I th- yeah, he was old enough to remember when the UE got kicked out of there. He would have been a young man, but, but anyway, and he knew personally people who were among those stewards who had been locked out at lunchtime and not allowed back in the plant. And uh, so for him, it was kind of a personal thing. Um, and he said to me one time, I want this so bad my teeth hurt. And I, <laughs> you know, I knew just what he meant. But I don't know if you guys remember, but UE used to have this, at the UE Hall, there was this printing press. Did you? Well, Jonathan, you wouldn't, but Sam, did you ever see the big old offset printing press? Okay, that was gone by your day, but Frank ran off a lot of leaflets for us. He put on his old apron and set up that machine and crank them out. Well, let's talk about strategy and let's talk about sort of the lessons Yeah, things are very different. Yeah, things are very different today. We don't have these big, big uh, factories anymore that people are mostly working in a very different work environment. And so um, I think the lessons um, would have to be taken and it reinterpreted, if you know what I mean, to fit the, the present situation. But I think one of the things that that we actually learned, well, that I think served us well before we went in there was to take lessons from the black power movement. Now, people today hear a lot about the civil rights movement, but the civil rights movement was followed up by the black power movement in which um, white supporters of civil rights were politely or not politely told you have to respect black leadership you can't just come in here and be the great white hope and and run the civil rights movement and the uh uh, there was a lot of organizing uh separately a lot of white people had their feelings hurt but what you could take out of that was that there, it was just absolutely essential to respect black leadership. And it was also essential to work really hard to bring other white people into the struggle in support of black leadership. So we had these sort of basic precepts that we learned from the movement before we went to work at Stuart Warner. And it really helped us to set the stage where we were able to really think through how we were going to do that because it was absolutely essential to getting off the ground at Stuart Warner. I think that 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 lesson is just as true today as it was then. You don't organize a bunch of white people and then invite black people to join you so that you'll be multiracial. You have to start in a different way. And 
so I think that I think that's huge, and I think the the race and nationality issues are just as big today as they were then, and it maybe feels a little different, but um, I think we all have to work on that. And, and what, what kind of things were successful in getting white workers to support black leadership? Well, the thing about doing this in the workplace is that white people at Stuart Warner could clearly see that they couldn't get anywhere on their own. First of all, a lot of them were bought off and were company people and were, you know, bosses or close to bosses or they had these little privileged jobs. And so the white workers that were actually workers, which was the majority of them, but they had to not identify with that sort of boss culture and they had to identify with the worker culture or they weren't going to get anywhere because the company wasn't going to give them anything. So, so that was objectively true. And it's like, if you want to get somewhere, we've got to unite, you know? So that was our message. In order to get for themselves. In in order to get for everybody. Yeah. It was the workers were going to get it together or they weren't going to get it. Individual workers could get, uh, you know, bought off, but not the whole, not the whole group. So that's the thing about workplace organizing that makes unity objectively important. You know, why I was drawn to it and why I think, although it's probably more difficult today than it was then, um, why a lot of us need to put our imaginations to work on how, how to, uh, how to do it in this new economy. What, are there any other organizing lessons that you want to impart? There were, at Stuart Warner, there were a lot of young lefties who, who um, like us, who came out of, you know, one progressive campaign or organization or another and got hired on. And, uh, but a lot of them just felt that they had the answers to, all questions and just try to get people to listen to them. And so they, they disliked us because, um, they, Bob and I had a special place in hell for them because we had organized a movement and they were on the outside looking in. And if any of you are listening to this program, you know who you are anyway. <laughs> um, not going to name Um, but um, during this one contract we were getting absolutely shafted we had people's hopes had been up and then the stewards had been fired and and we were just not in any position to do anything we were still in the IBEW and there was no strike fund and there was no preparation and so a lot of these radical groups were saying we need to have a strike and we sat down in our in our little caucus, our our organizing committee, and we talked about it. We everybody wanted to have a strike, but we said we can't. We're not in a position to do it. We were vilified for for taking that position. The majority of people was not going to vote for a strike because workers kind of you kind of know that you're not ready when there's been no preparation and. People, we just weren't, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't a smart idea. But we were vilified for that. But but we always felt like 
we were being responsible to what would be best for the workers and that and then sure enough after the after they seized control of their own union had their own union the first thing they did was go out on strike and that was successful because they were organized and they were together and had you know some some institutional support also from the UE as far as I'm concerned, my years at Stuart Warner was the equivalent of getting a PhD. I've learned more from the people there and from our movement there than I have learned anywhere before or after. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing all of those uh, stories. Um, well, thank you for listening to me. <laughs> it's fun to it's fun to think back. You've been listening to the Smash Up Derby, the podcast about working class politics. If you like what you hear, head over to our website, smashuppodcast.com. There's links to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And uh, sign up for our email list, follow us on Twitter, and uh, there's also an ask or comment section if you've got questions or comments. Uh, you can also follow us or tweet at us on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>